Welcome to My Life Chassid is Supplied, episode 459. This program is a merit of Baruch bin Yaman ben Menucha Lana and Miriam bas Chayasara Altes, Yukusil ben Leia Rachel and Rachel bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Tadris ben Miriam and Sarah bas Rachel Altes. So we just finished Shabbos Chazoyin and we're going into the days of Tisha B'Av, saddest day of the Hebrew calendar, the five tragic events that happened on that day as the Mishnah enumerates and uh, with perhaps the greatest tragedy of all, the destruction of the first and the second temple. And yet at the same time, we know that these days are meant to be to be transformed into joyous days and celebrations because in Judaism and Torah, nothing is just a negative on its own. Everything is meant. We raise a building with a Z in order to build a greater building in its stead. The first and second temple were destroyed in order for us to be able to build a third Beis HaMikdash, Mikdash Adnei Ken Yedecha, which will be a permanent Beis HaMikdash with the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. So this is a central theme of these days of dark and light, sadness and joy, transformation, of looking at the extremes of life, the two ends of the spectrum, the downturns, and then how we turn them into something that propels us to much greater growth. It's a central theme in life in general, and especially personified in this period in time. So we'll be speaking about that. But let's begin because today is Hey of the 451st yard site of the Arizal. So being that it is today, let's begin with that. And from that, we'll talk about the nine days. We'll talk about Shabbos Chazain, Shabbos Nachmu. It's a very, uh, I don't want to use the word rich time. It's rich in meaning, though it also reminds us and, and tells us about some of the sad aspects of life. But it's all part of a larger narrative, which is always the beautiful end of the story, that whatever happens in life will lead toward the best possible ending with the Geula, the personal and global redemption. So, Heyov, interesting, everything is Ashgach HaPratis. Why of all days in the year was Arizal's Yartzeit on the 5th of Av? We spoke about last week that the Yartzeit of Arn HaKayin is on Rish These are not just random events. Another interesting parallel, Rab the other great leader, and of Primis HaTere, Mori de Rosa da Raisa, Rashmim when is his yard site? Lag Boemer, also a period of sadness when we don't do weddings because of the events that happened, the tragic events that happened during the days of the Omer. So the answer is in one word, Magdim Rafur Lamako. The principle we have in Judaism, in Tatum, that God, before he sends any illness, he precedes it with giving us the cure. Because as I just pointed out, there's no such thing as a negative, as an end in itself. Everything is meant to bring out something deeper. The very existence of this world, the very creation of this world, <coughs> and even the darkness of the world, is meant to bring out deeper light, to make a dira a home for God in this world. 
So when we're dealing with days when there are challenges, days that we remember the destruction of the temple, which its significance is that fact that heaven and earth, which were meant to join together as they did at Matan Teda, Yem Chasanose, Zematan Teda, the marriage between divine and existence, between heaven and earth. The Beis Amigdash personifies that. Build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. Beis Amigdash. When it's destroyed, it means there's some rift, there's some dissonance between the divine and existence. That's the illness, so to speak. And what's the healing that precedes it? Something that gives us the power to reconnect the two. And indeed, that's exactly what Darizal represented. In Teira, there's two dimensions to Teira. There's Nigla de Teira, there's Primisa Teira. Gufa Daraisa, Nishmasa Daraisa, the body of Teira and the soul of Teira. For a person to be healthy, we need to have a healthy body with a healthy soul within it. Same thing on a collective level, on the larger universal level. You need to have a physical world, but its soul is vibrant is dynamic, is energizing this body. The divine energy within existence is, is, is apparent and connected and aligned with existence itself. When there's a rift, we need deeper strength. So we turn to people like the Arizal and the Arizal's Yartzeit on the 5th of Av to give us that comfort, to give us that consolation, to give us that empowerment, to know that even though we are literally in the nine days the saddest time of the year, we have the Arizal represents the Achdus of Nigla de Teda and Primis Teda, of body and soul. And indeed, look at the Arizal. Historically, there were always different Jewish camps, so to speak. There was Beis Shammai, Beis Hillel, different opinions, different approaches. But there were the few throughout history, and Arizal, and Rajab Shimon Ba'echai, another, and Arnakayin, that represented and captured the idea of unity. An brought Shalom Bayis. Oyev Esabrius. Oyev Shalom of Shalom. And that's why all the Jews grieved and mourned when he passed. Because they saw, they saw in a very palpable way how Aaron brought Shalom and Ava among people. Rashbi was Ma'achid as well. He united the inner and outer dimension of Teda and united all the Jews as well in that same sense. The people who are the more Bali Nigla and the Bali Primis And that is all the same. That is all united all segments of the Jewish world. Sfardim, Ashkenazim, Chsidim, non Chsidim. Even though Arizal was before the Chsidim as we know them today, but Arizal, the great Arizal. Because there are individuals when they reach a place where there's higher than the, higher than the, the structures, which is where the divide that comes between body and soul. These are the ones that can bring that unity. Now, just for the record, every God will be Israel, every Talmud Chacham obviously does that. But there are those that stands out, and you see it in the fact that the Jewish people unite behind them, despite our differences. So that Israel comes Magdim in the nine days, like, like Aaron a few days before that, that brings that type of Achdus into our lives. The Kisra Arizal, as he said, Mitzvah Legal the Mitzvah to reveal this wisdom. Today, more than ever, we need to Neshama, the soul of Judaism. It was always there, but it was not always spoken. There were times we picked it up just from the vibe, from the environment, living in, a, in an environment of Yerushalayim.
But then came a need to reveal it. And as we get closer to Mashiach, and the darkness got darker, we get more keiches, more, more, fact, more resources, and more treasures, including the Teres Arizal and that of his students, and ultimately coming to the Baal Shem Tev and Teres Achsidis. So that's one lesson coming from the Arizal these days, the lesson of uniting Teres, all aspects of Teres, the inner and outer, the body and soul. It also, of course, emphasizes Avas and Achdus Yisrael. Right? The very idea of uniting with each other, and which was the antidote to the Sinas Chinam, the baseless hatred that caused the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Our Father blesses us when we stand together, when children are fighting with each other, God forbid. Our Father cannot bear that. For the Beis Hamikdash to stand, we have to be united. And that's the work that we have to do. So that's just a, 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 a short point about the Arizal. I've spoken about this in previous years at My Life Chassidus Applied. You can go to chassidusapplied.com and find previous episodes on this topic. But this is a good segue because that's the central theme that we're on. Yesterday we read Shabbos Chazayin. We read the Haftarah of Chazayin Yeshayo, the vision of Yeshaya with the Barjitzavar's Teir, as we discussed last week, the vision of the Beis Hamidah Shashlishi. And indeed, how does the Haftarah conclude? What does that signify? The idea that the Tepodah, the Mishpat, that Zion, will be redeemed through Mishpat, through Teir, especially Halacha. Veshavah and his captives through Zdokah. What's the connection? Because Teda is the connection between us and the divine. When we learn Teda and we follow God's blueprint, this is God's desire and God's chachma, wisdom, we are realigning existence to Hashem. That's how you bridge heaven and earth. Tzedakah unites us. When you unite yourself, that's re- that redeems and corrects and repairs the rifts that were created through baseless hatred and so on. So with that, let us talk a few things about Shabbos Chazayin as it leads into the coming days and leads, of course, to Tisha B'av, and then following that will be Shabbos Nachmu. So someone asked the question, what is the meaning of Tzim B'mishpet Tepodah and V'shavah B'tzdaka? Does it mean, if we all make sure to give Tzdaka, that Hashem will redeem us from this Golas? Should we start a campaign asking everyone to put something in Zdok every morning when they wake up, even if it's just a coin? And this way Hashem will have no choice but to keep His promise and redeem us. Absolutely. That's exactly what the Pasuk means. Especially during this time. And indeed the Rebbe, one of the big things they called for us in the nine days to follow exactly that directive. Because Zdokah is, Chlal Zdokah is a Mekarevus HaSagu'ula. Zdok is great because it brings the goal. But why does it bring together? Why, is, why does it speed up and the goal? Because Zdok creates that connection. Connection between us, the connection between us and Hashem. So that's a direct cause and effect. What is the goal? The goal is the revelation of the divine in this world. The Aleph of Alufish Lelem, you put it into Goyla, it turns into goal. When we show Zdok, when we give Zdok, that's what we're doing. Zaka is a form of ge'ula pratis. When you help somebody, you're redeeming them in some way. So Zaka is the keli for ge'ula 
all, all year round, and especially during these days. Okay. So Zdoka, especially in the later generations, as the Alter Rebbe writes in the Geras HaKedosh and Kuntasachin, why Zdoka became such a powerful thing, as we get closer to Gula, Zdoka becomes a tremendous asset. So always Zdoka is, of course, one of the greatest mitzvahs. But especially when we need even more unity and more agdus, more, more love and more connection. Another person writes, since Shabbos Chazain, the Torah of the Barditchever, that Hashem shows the Besamikdash, the third temple to every Jew from a distance, in order to provoke and evoke feelings of gaguim, of yearning and longing for this Besamikdash to do whatever we have to do, tshuva, to do tshuva and to do repair our ways and and improve our work in order to have be married to that Besamikdash. So someone asked the question, which I believe I addressed last week, why don't, we, why, why don't I see the Holy Temple on Shabbos Chazen? How come every year on Shabbos Chazen I expect to see a vision of the Beis Amidus, but I don't see it? Am I missing something? What is this vision supposed to look like? So the Rebbe, in a number of sikhs, talks about this, but specifically in the sikh, remember, Tavshim Mem Vov, 1986, and explains what you see, what you see is the Gagoyim. You can envision, on this, in this in Shabbos Chazen, you can envision the third Beis Amidish, and especially when we learn the laws about the Beis Amidish Ashlishi, and we learn about its measurements, and we learn about its architecture, and we learn about its structure. That helps us envision it, and envisioning it as what? As a Mishkan, as a Migdash, for God's presence, for Shachanti Besechem among us. So how is that presence manifest? Through additional Teda Mitzvah. So when we do that when we feel the yearning and we and the and the longing for it, that is manifestation of that vision. It's not just a matter of looking at a painting, or looking at an image, or dreaming about it. It's envisioning the Beis Hamikdash as being the place where Mish, where God meets Earth, where God meets existence, where God meets us, the people. where we meet, and we connect in an intimate way, and we do that through Torah and Mitzvahs. So when we increase in Torah and Mitzvahs, when you see that in a very palpable, real, real way, that is like seeing the Beis Amidah Shashlishi, as the Rebbe explains there. So we have our work cut out for us. Okay. From that, let us now move to Tishabov. Then we'll talk about some other matters, and we'll go from there to, we'll go in the order. Shabbos Nachmu, Pashas Vashanon, and a few other items, some follow-ups. Hopefully we'll cover as many questions as I can. Here's a good opportunity to announce our website, chassidahsupply.com, is a, uh, a forum where you can submit any question anonymously. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits. In addition to that, you'll find archives of all the previous programs. Check it out. Very uh, useful and, uh, and valuable resource that provides um, clarity and direction in so many different topics. And I want to thank you all for your comments and your uh, positive feedback. And of course, your questions, which keeps this whole program going. And of course, your support. Talking about Zdoka, it's a good opportunity. You can go there to donate or sponsor a program of Chassidus My Life, Chassidus Supplied. It would be, be deeply appreciated. And what better time than seeing Bamishpa Tepada Vishavab Zdoka? We're trying to rebuild the base of within ourselves, within our children, within our homes and families within our communities, to merit to the Beis HaMidrash HaShlishi, Yafutza Maineseh HaChutza, 
by teaching the primis atera, based on the teres arizal, teres arashbi, that's how we, that's how we bring Mashiach, as Mashiach told the Balshamtim. Okay. So, a whole bunch of questions on Tishabov. Let's cover that. Is Tishabov the yard site of the Beis Amigdosh? So, the answer shortly yes, is the yard site of the destruction of the Beis Amigdosh, the first Beis Amigdosh and the second, as the Mishnah in Tainus tells us. But with the goal of knowing that the point is, just as Yem Chasanos says, and then he continues that Yem Chasanos and Yem Simchas Libay is the day of the building of the Beis Amigdash, that all the negative things are meant to rebuild the Beis Amigdash Ashlishi. So it's not just a yard it's a yard meant to be murdered within us. We spoke the yearning, the longing, and the increase and improvement in our ways of aligning ourselves to what Hashem wants of us in order to bring the Gula Hamitiz Vashlem. So the person asks, if that's the case, so why is it, why do we mourn on this day instead of doing positive things to bring the third temple like we find in many other yard sites? On some yard sites, such as Rabshimim by Yechai, person writes, we don't mourn, but instead we celebrate the essence of the teachings of Rashbi. And he actually asked, it should be a Yem Simcha, Yem Simchose of Rashbi. So why in Tisha B'av do we mourn? Maybe we should celebrate the 830 years that we had a physical base, two physical base amigdashes, 410 years, the first base amigdash, 420 years, the second, and celebrate the revolution, the revelation of the third everlasting base amigdash, Bekarov, soon. Okay, good question. Fair question. Why don't we celebrate as we do in the Yartzat Rajbi? So, firstly, keep in mind that the Rajbi is, of course, a unique situation because the Rajbi personally requested it. And Chesidus explains why the Rajbi requested it, the connection to Rajbi, the connection to Primis Atela. The second thing is this. We're not mourning the Beis Amigdash just to mourn, as I've discussed a number of times. Even Shiva, when a person sits, Shiva, for a parent or for a loved one, he's supposed to sit seven days, not more. Not less and not more. Here, we're sitting almost 2,000 years. How does that make sense? It's not, ecologically, you're not supposed to. It says, you're not supposed to sit more Shiva than seven days. So clearly, the mourning and grieving here is a little deeper. Yes, there's an element of remembering and commemorating. Besamidosh, such a powerful experience, the divine on earth, and that, God forbid, that was concealed, severed in some ways. But that's not an end in itself. Why do we remember it? Because we want it back. And that's why we say that on Tisha B'av, the saddest day of the calendar, Mashiach is born. And that's why we say, Nachim Imincha as the Arizal, the Bala of today, the Bala of Hate of Hey Of, tells us. Because within the throes, within the abyss, within the darkness, lies the deepest salvation. So there are days like Rajbi, like, like Ba'imer, where the Rajbi requested that it should be a Yem Simchose. That was his request. But as far as other days, like Tisha B'av, we're told, and on one hand there are halachas, we have to recognize that which is 
yet not there, which is we don't have the Geula. But we also have to recognize the positive. And that's the attitude we have to go into it. So you can't ask a question why, from one place, Rashbi, so, so what, Yem Sim Chosev Rashbi, we don't say Yem Sim Chosev, let's say, of Arizal on the fifth of Av. Even though there is an element of an Neshama going back to its source, Neshama, the, all the Aveda that he does is elevates in the day of his yard site, and his Pael Yeshua is Bekat of Aretz, it affects salvations down here on earth. But still, there are days that are called Yem Sim Chosev, a day like Rashbi. Other days, Zion other included, are not called that. So every type of day has its particular role. But overall, <coughs> they all have both elements. Just as Rajbi itself, of course they sat Shiva for him as students at the time. He didn't say don't sit Shiva, he said, but it should be designated as a Yem Simcha. <coughs> so bottom line is that Tisha B'av has both dimensions and we have to keep that in mind all the time. Okay. So someone then asks a question the other way around. Why not fast, at least symbolically, throughout the year? If we truly mourn the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple, why do we only fast on Tisha B'av, on the day of it was destroyed, instead of fasting every day of the year until the Beis Amigdash is rebuilt? I'm not proposing never to eat at all. We can eat at night, just enough to survive. But during the rest of the day, we should fast and be in mourning for the departure of the Holy, of the Holy Shekhinah. Well, the answer is the other way around as well. Everything with measure. Why indeed a person, Le'elenu, sits Shiva, shouldn't be more than seven days, not less? Because the Tate is telling us what is a healthy form of catharsis, a healthy form of healing. Sitting more days is not healthy. There comes a point where you grieve, and then the grief has to be channeled into, into actions and rebuild life. There are times when Ace Lifkes, where time when you have to cry. There's a time you have to celebrate. The Tate designates what's the healthy form of when one has to remember the introspection, the sadness that comes with the loss, and when that has to be then turned into starting the positive growth that comes from it. <clears throat> so the Tata tells us when, what we do on which day, Tisha of you fast, other times and days of the year we don't fast. There are other fast days, some of them connected to the destruction of the temple. But each one has their role. So it's not like we come and just, I, I, I want to, don't, since we're sad, let's be sad all the time. There are other ways we remember. We always remember Yerushalayim. It's one of the reasons we break a, break a glass under the chuppah and other things that we do to remember the destruction. But the Torah tells us how to remember in a healthy way. You don't want to leave that up to people because our emotions can get the better of us and either you can over-grieve or under-grieve, over-celebrate or under-celebrate. So there's a healthy balance of how we deal with this and how we, how, and how we, we create the equilibrium where we have both ends of it. Yes, there's certain sadness that comes from something is missing, but that missing thing has to elicit and bring out from us a deeper yearning and a deeper connection, a deeper remembering of what needs to be done to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash Ashlish. As a continuation of that question, of another, the person asks, why don't we wear sackcloth today? Sack. Why does wearing sackcloth go out of style? The tailor says to wear sackcloth one morning. We learned that from Yaakov when he heard about Yosef's, what they told him was his death. So why are we only 
Why are we going against the words of the Torah by not doing it anymore? So this commentaries talk about, first of all, it doesn't say there's a mitzvah to wear sock. It was definitely a way of mourning. But today, when people don't mourn that way, it's not part of the meaning. That's right. There are other things, certain garments that you wear that remember something, but that, that symbolize something. But that was in the time when it was done that way. We also don't wear the same clothing that Moshe Rabbeinu and the people traveling through the wilderness. We wear different. We wear suits. We wear jackets. We wear capotes. So it's everything in its time. That's one of the basic explanations given for it. Today, that's not the derech, so we don't do that. Um, but regarding to our discussion, we do lower the lights in Ashul and Tishabov. We sit on lower stools. So there are customs that we keep up that do remember. But again, all of this is to be a catalyst to bring out the yearning, to bring out the strength of Tzimba Mishpat Tepada V'Shavah B'Tzdok. Another question. Famous Gemara in Gitten. Afnun Hey, Afnun Vav, page 55, 56, talks about the destruction of the temple. And one of the things, the famous story is the Gemara says that the Besamish was destroyed because of Kamtse and Bar Kamtse. But it says, Kharva Besamish because of Kamtse and Bar Kamtse. The, famous, the story goes that there was a person who threw a party and he had a friend, his name was Kamtse. He had an enemy whose name was Bar Kamtse. He sent a servant to call Kamsa. The servant mistakenly went and called and invited Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa came to the party. And as soon as his enemy saw him, the host, he told him he wants him to leave. And he begged him, please, I'm here already. Let me stay. I'll pay for part of the meal. I'll pay for all of the meal. No. He humiliated him and threw him out. And Bar Kamsa said, because the Chacham that were there, they were there, and they did not make a machal. They didn't protest. That's when he went and he informed on uh, the Idin, which led to the Chum Besamigdash. So questions, many questions on the story, but one that comes that comes that people ask is, why is Kamtsa, the friend, blamed if he wasn't even at the party? It says the Chum was because of Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa. He had nothing to do with the whole event. So there are more questions as well. The Chum Beis Hamidus happened because two people, two people were petty. So the Maral in Netzach Yisrael chapter 5 talks about it and says, no, this symbolizes the story of a climate, of an environment that was going on. The Sinas Chinam that was going on. What do people do? They create these cliques. You're my friend, you're my enemy. So the idea of Kamtze by Kamtze was not Kamtze did something necessarily according to Maral's explanation at least, or this explanation of the Maral, is the idea of this click. You're my friend, you're my enemy, creating this the divisiveness. And the Gemara is trying to say, this, and this story symbolized one example of a divisiveness that was going on. So when people start creating these alliances. So that's why the Kamtsa Bar Kamtsa, the idea of an enemy and a friend, there are those that go further and explain even that Kamsa, some say he was at the party and he didn't say anything, therefore he's also culpable. Others say he wasn't at the party. Had he come to the party, then maybe his friend would have not been so upset. There are different ways it's explained. And others say the Gemara is not saying it's because of Kamsa. 
It's saying because of the story around Kamsa Bar Kamsa. Some talk about the names being very similar, how, very, how, how careful we have to be with that. But let's go back to the Maral's overall. We have to understand this was reflecting a general attitude where we create these, these, these uh, unhealthy alliances. You're my friend. You know. Now, you could also say that Kamsa went along with that. I'm your friend. And both of us are that he's our enemy. So it's more that type of environment rather than a specific something that happened. Obviously what happened happened was when he sent them away and embarrassed and humiliated him. So from that we learn to understand the story really reflects a climate and environment. We see today, for example, a lot of polar, political polarization in communities, in politics for sure, and others. But politics is one thing, but in our own communities. Alliances to create these type of... We're all one. So that's the general gist of it, and again, here emphasizes the importance of Avos Yisrael, of Ahdus Yisrael, to not allow, don't even wait for somebody to be humiliated. Don't get, align yourself. Someone comes and says to you, listen, I want you to be my friend. And both of us look at that person as our enemy. No. I'm your friend, and let's be friends with that person too. That's what you have to respond. We're not creating alliances. We're not creating these, these fragmented groups, us and them. We're all one. Can we have different opinions? Of course we can. There's a respectful way. There's a civil way. There's a tater way. A way. A loving way. People can love each other and have disagreements. They don't have to agree about everything. But it's never personal and it's definitely not based on any hatred and definitely not humiliating or embarrassing anyone. So there's much to be learned about it today as well. We don't have to wait for actual machlekas to break out or somebody throw someone else out from their simcha, from their party, from their wedding or from their celebration. But just the mere fact of alliances, that's not the way, that's not the way to be. On the contrary, we have to do the exact opposite. That's how we, are, we repair the situation and bring the gu'ullah. Another person asks a question about explanations. Why do we attribute a reason for the destruction of the temple, like in this case, sinas chinam, baseless hatred, when we don't do so for other tragedies, like the Holocaust, or the way someone wrote it, whilst we accept that we cannot fathom an explanation for the Holocaust, why do we attribute reasoning for the destruction of the Beis Amigdash? Why is it okay for Hashem to destroy the Beis Amigdash and allow the murder of Jews for the reasoning of Sinas Chinam, for example? <coughs> okay, let's broaden the question. You look in the Torah and you see some of the chapters about the Teichacha, Pasha Bechakose, Pasha Kisave, Pasha Dvarim. In short, Teichacha is where we talk about the consequences of our behavior, including negative behavior. And we see clearly that it says in the Torah, if a person does something, God says, this is what will happen, cause and effect. If you'll follow my laws, then I will give you Geshem, the rain, material, all your blessings. And if not, God forbid, there'll be consequences, cause and effect. And yet when it comes to the Holocaust or other situations, we say very clearly, and the Rebbe spoke about this at length, we don't look for excuses. We don't start saying, oh, this is due to the fact that this one did that, that one did that. The Tater says it is dependent on our actions. So the answer is a few, a few points. Number one, 
When the Hashem himself and the Teda comes and says, here's something that happened for a reason, that is God's prerogative. He's telling us, that I'm destroying the base of is being destroyed because of sin as chinam. This is not you and I coming and starting to point fingers. Hashem is telling us for a reason, because he wants us to rebuild the base of with avas chinam, with unconditional love. For anyone to come and say something happened because of someone else's sins, no. The Rambam says, introspection, look at yourself, something happened. Yes, it would be cruel, he says, to say mikra nikris, it just happened. You have to look inside, introspection, soul search, accountability. But not to come and start pointing fingers. When Hashem wants to say something, he'll say it. And he says it. <coughs> with again, with a purpose for us to build. He's giving us magnum nefulamaki, he's telling us, here's why it happened. Do this and this. Make sure it doesn't happen again or make sure the base of is rebuilt. Because every generation that does not rebuild the base of is as if they destroyed it, as the Yerushalmi tells us. But even then, let's keep in mind the mysteries of God's ways we don't know. And that's why we stay away from trying to speculate and give reasons for tragedies, personal ones, collective ones. Always we look inside ourselves, what can I do to become better, to make the world a better place, to bring the goal that all these sorrows can end. But definitely not to point fingers, not to play the judge and the jury and everything that comes in between. Okay. And one more question. Or I'll say two more questions in regarding to Tisha of Matters. We know that from the five things that happened on Tisha B'Av, one of the five things, but one of the things that happened, the first thing was the Chet HaMaraglim. The Maraglim came back with a bad report and they incited the whole Jewish people, or most, not Yeshua, not Kolov ben Yifuna, not Yeshua ben Nun, not Kolov ben Yifuna, but they incited the people and they slandered, Diba Sa'orez, they slandered the land. They, the, which land? The promised land, the holy land. And as a result, all the Jews were crying that night. So Hashem said, are you crying? I'll give you a b'chiel to cry. That was the night of Tisha B'av. Just as an aside, the Zoya says actually that uh, Tisha B'av also, I believe it's the Zoya that says it about Tisha B'av, or maybe Yom Kippur, which is that that was also when there was the wrestling between Yaakov and the Sar Shalesov, the angel of Esav. It may be Yom Kippur, so I would stand corrected, not Tisha B'av. But regardless, of, we know it says in Shalah, of is Rosh Hashanah, Edem Bovel. Edem, the Romans, the Golas Edem that destroyed temple, second temple, and Bovel, the Babylonians that destroyed the first temple. And of course, Edem is, uh, is uh, Esav. So, the question someone's asking, so what's the connection? On a spiritual level, what's the connection between the Miraglim saying a false report and the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, which both happened on this day, Tisha B'av? It seems to me both are opposite energies. The Miraglim, the scouts, preferred a completely spiritual existence, so they wanted to stay in the wilderness, in the desert, protected by the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, and the Beis Amigdash was the prime representation of the revelation of the Shekhinah. It seems the energy of the Miraglim's arguments would perform more revelation 
of the Shekhinah, not less revelation with the destroyed Beis Hamikdash. But there must be a connection between both things happening on the same day. Okay, interesting correlation. But keep in mind that Beis Hamikdash is about interfacing a material world with the spiritual world. That's why Ve'yichuli Truma that the Jews should give of all the materials, gold, silver, copper, and the other materials to build a Mishkan because not in heaven, not a Mishkan, not a temple in heaven, and not out of spiritual materials, out of physical materials, because that's the purpose. To transform the material existence into a home for the divine. The Maraglim wanted to have a spiritual experience. They didn't want to engage with the material world. They said, It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. It's true there was a Mishkin with them in the Midbar, a, temp- a portable one, a temporary one. But the Ebishter wants a Kavua, Bais Kavua, one made of, of rock, not just of materials, but of stone, and built in a permanent way on the Temple Mount. Had the Miraglim had their way, they would have stayed and the Mishkin would have been forever a, 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 a temporary one. Even if they had built something permanent, but that's not Yerushalayim. The goal is to go into the world and there build a Beis Amigdash. So the Meraglim going more to the, the, more to the Ruchnis. So though you ask the question, it seems that the Meraglim were looking for more revelation, which is the Beis Amigdash. Yes, but not with the Gashmis. The structure of the temple means that both become separate, matter and spirit. Before Matan there was Exeda, there was a schism, and a decree that separated between the Yenim and Tachtenim, matter and spirit. But after Matan these are meant to come together now. And the Maraglim defied that, and the, and the Churm Beis Amigdash is connected to that as well. So yes, some people may be challenged by the, the spiritual Shechina part, and others are challenged of how do we bring that Shechina down to earth in this material world. That's the connection. And here's one, yes, one final one. In the Yem Yem of Gimelov, appropriately, the Rebbe, the Rebbe who prepared and compiled Gimelov, he brings from the Rebbe Rashab, the Fidika Rebbe saying, name of his father, that Rebbe Rashab is quoted as saying, when Mashiach will come, we will yearn for the days of Golis. So banking of the text from Golis. The statement needs explanation. If the whole purpose of our existence is to reveal the godliness in the physical world by doing Torah and Mitzvahs, once we reach that goal, why should anyone want to yearn for the days of Golis instead of basking in the radiance of Hashem's revealed light during the times of Mashiach? So one of the answers to this question is the fact that when we are in a dark place, when we're thirsty, the human, na- the human nature is such that our yearning, our longing is deeper. Once we have it, we don't necessarily have the same type of sense of urgency. What the Rebbe Rashab is saying is that we want to have that even when the Geula comes, not only we shouldn't take it for granted, the same passion, the famous Tater from the Baal and then he says, That my heart, my soul, is thirsty to you. 
Kamal Khanafshi, my spirit, is pining for you. The Eretzi of Aif, because I'm in a, an arid, a dry, an impoverished land. And then he says, Kem that I shall see you and gaze at you with Kedush in your full glory when the Besamidish will be here. Says the Balshamtav type that we should interpret the word Cain, Halavai. Just as we've had the passion when we were thirsty for God, King, Halavai B'Kedosh, Halavai when I'm in Kedosh and I'm basking in the glow, I should also have that same passion. Chazisicha with that same Tzomalacha. That's the word. And that's indeed what Golas does. Because of the concealment, it becomes that catalyst that triggers and propels us to go to places we would never go to on our own. That that type of experience. Obviously, it doesn't mean that we want the gullus again, but we want to have that passion. That's one of the most basic interpretations and understanding of the Hayyem Yem. Remember, today it's fighting from between the negative, from bad to good. When Mashiach comes, it'll be good to better, but we want the good to better to be with the same passion as when we fight something that's negative to go to positive. Not because we want the negative, we want the passion part. Okay. So a few uh, questions that came in, I guess you can say connected to little Tashgacha Pratis. So in the news, there was an event which is still not clear exactly what happened, that the edge, the outskirts of Berlin, Germany, a lion was sighted, a loose lion. I think now they think it was a wild boar. But regardless, someone asked the question, Shalom Rabbi Jacobson, what would the Baal Shem Tov teach us? The Baal Shem Tov who said that everything we see and hear is a lesson. What would he teach us as a lesson in serving God that we can learn from the story of the lioness or thought to be so, being in the loose in the, in, in this week in, the, in Berlin. I'm thinking this happened the month of Av, which is connected with the lion, Leo. Aryeh is the mazel. And the temple that is a lion, compared to the, yes, the Medrash, the Yalkutshmeni, the famous one that the temple is compared to Aryeh. And the Abish is compared to Aryeh. So wondering if there would be some sort of relevance and practical application. Thanks. Well, let me quote the famous Yalkutshmeni that Rebbe brings often, that it says that in this month of Av, in the month of the lion, the lion was destroyed, Besamigdash, by the lion, because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, or Bovel, was compared to a lion. Almanas, Almanas, on condition that in this month of the lion, the lion shall be rebuilt. The third temple shall be rebuilt. The second temple, the third temple shall be rebuilt. And we will have the lion, the Ebrister, Ayyashag, Milayira, that the Ebrister will return in his revealed presence, the Shekhinah, in the Beis Amidosh. Now we know Berlin, especially, just go back a century ago, less than a century ago, what was going on there. You can say it's another form of Babylon or worse, 
Nazi Europe or other things that happen in this place. So I can understand that someone can say a lesson. Again, I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if we know all the facts. But even though there was a, even if there was a Havamina, you could say, what's the lesson? The lesson is exactly this, that we should take the lion of the negative, the aggressive lion, the violent lion that destroys and turn it to the lion of Gedusha with the Besamidah Shashlishi. And that's the ultimate transformation. Not just building something, but taking the very negative, the lion itself, and turning the lion into a force that transforms and, and becomes the Besamidah Shashlishi. So, yes, interesting lesson. Another recent event are the storms. So someone asked the question, what can we learn from the recent thunderstorms in the northeast? Every day this week, there was a big damaging storm in a different part of the upstate New York and Vermont. And you could add a few more states that flooded whole cities, washed out roads and bridges, and it may be months until the Palisades Parkway is repaired and reopened. I think it's already been done that. But regardless, yes, it's all correct. Does it say in the Torah that right before Mashiach comes, there will be big changes in weather patterns and big storms will occur? All I remember learning is a right is that right before Mashiach comes, Hashem will take the sun out of its shield and the weather will get very hot, much hotter than normal. Perhaps that's the explanation for the current trend of global warming and that it means Mashiach's arrival is imminent. May he come before my flooded basement dries out from this flood, which normally takes two or three days. Amen. Amen. So everything is Ashgach HaPratis. Some things we can comment on, some things we don't always know in speculation. But the bottom line is if it could be a lesson of Eidus Hashem, like the Rebbe Rashab said, he doesn't like when people say Pshatlach in Tanya. But if it adds a Yiddish Shemayim and Eidus Hashem, he doesn't mind. So, yes, anything is a wake up call. When the things you see a storm, it's a wake up call. A thunderstorm is a wake up call, literally. The Rebbe refers sometimes to storms, snowstorms, other storms, as being wake up calls from heaven to wake us up to do tshuva, to wake us up to repair our ways, to become better. So if that's a lesson we're learning, great. You know, the idea of rainstorms, so though on one hand they're destructive, they also remind us of the day when water, when the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, Shiach's times. So you can definitely learn lessons from all these things. Beyond that, I don't know if I want to comment, or I'm even qualified to comment, to be honest. You know, what this has deeper meaning, getting into the heat waves and global warming. I don't want to talk about global warming right now. It's a very different topic. But I will say everything does have a lesson. The Rebbe has spoken about earthquakes. He spoke about other events, especially weather, weather systems that's disrupted and so on as lessons. Does it say in some Adrashim before Mashiach comes? There are, but you know, we have to also be careful not just to grab every medish and every time we see a medish and say, this is it. When the Rebbe brings a medish, it has a, that type of authority. So that's, that's what I think we shall learn. And above all, I remember when the pandemic broke out, COVID. So my thinking was then, I actually registered some websites called Pandemic of Goodness and Kindness. Every negative storm has to be turned into a positive storm, a storm of good deeds, of goodness and kindness of mitzvahs, of tefillah, of davening, of reaching other people, a storm of Avis Yisrael, 
creating revolutions in a positive way. That's the best way to counter negative storms is by creating positive ones. Okay. So now let's move to Shabbos Nachmu and Parshas Vashanan. So again, I've talked about these themes in previous years. Always trying to add something every year. Ein base meders belechidush. Want to always add some some touch. So let me go and talk about first Nachmu. So what's the lesson of Shabbos Nachmu? So we know that the first the three weeks that we're still in the middle of and coming to a conclusion are called the Tlosa de Paranusa. The three weeks of retribution. For what? For the negative things that happen. The Gemara used that in context that every week we say a Haftera that's fitting to the theme of the Pasha. But not in the three weeks. In the three weeks we say something that's fitting to the time period of the three weeks. Then comes followed by that. that fo- that's followed by Shiva de Nechemta. Seven weeks of Nechama, of comfort, of consolation. And the two, the Haftera is not about the Pasha but about the time. So Vaschanon will be Shabbos Nachmu, then comes Ekev, and that will go seven weeks into Rosh Hashanah. And the Gemara concludes, and then two weeks of Tiyufta, two Haftedas that are the theme of Tshuva, Shabbos Tshuva, and usually another Shabbos between Yom Kippur and Sukkot, depending on the schedule. So you have three, seven, and two, three Puranissa, the negative, seven followed by seven of comfort, and then three, two of Tshuva. There's a very powerful Maimon, Isa B'Psikta, from the Rabhil Parashar, whose Yotzai is actually the 11th of Ov. There's a Maimah that Rebbe cites, quite a few places, where he explains Api Kabbalah, these three, seven, and two. Three and seven, of course, are the spheres, ten spheres. Three Moichin and seven Midas, and then the Amshacha through the two. I actually wrote up an English adaptation of that. If you want to check it out, just go to meaningfullive.com, type in three weeks of of, of retribution or seven weeks of comfort and you'll see a summary of that mimer. And it's actually a fascinating um, model for dealing first with the three weeks of pain and loss led leading into th- seven weeks of healing and comfort and leading to two weeks of tshuva of return and reconnection. So overall that's the lesson and Nachamu is the beginning of that seven weeks of healing process. Nachamu Nachamu Ami. The Medrash brings, from the, brings from the Medrash that this is like a dialogue between Hashem and the people. Hashem, saying to, Hashem sending Nachmu Nachmu Ami. I'm sending you my prophet to comfort you, double comfort. Then the Eden say to Hashem, one second, you destroyed the basement, why don't you come along? Why are you sending messengers? And ultimately Hashem agrees. And then finally, in week four. I personally come to console you. And it continues to progress. Again, on our site, MeaningfulLife.com, I have a breakdown of what these seven weeks are in terms of recovery and healing and growth and so on. So this is all part of the process. One interesting point, I'll just make one key point, is Nachmu Nachmu Ami, is indeed, why did Hashem send the, the prophets? When they come, he's going to come anyway. He comes in week four. So why did he send initially prophets, leaving room for the Jews to argue, why are you sending, you You abandon us, come yourself and comfort us. So one of the answers, I've never seen this, but it's a thought, 
is because Hashem could comfort us. Of course Hashem could comfort us. He gave power to humans to comfort each other. Because you would think humans are all mortals. We're in it together. How could I comfort you when I'm in the same situation and predicament you were in? So Hashem said, no, I'll give you the power. I'm giving you power for people to comfort people. I've had some very fascinating stories around this, but it's not for now. Point being is that Nachmu Nachmu begins the process that we have to comfort each other. We have to reach each other. You see someone with a little pain, say a kind word. And obviously we have to be receptive to receiving comfort as well. And that's the first step of the seven weeks as we go forward. Another person asked the question, okay, why has Shabbos Nachmu turned into a weekend of debauchery? Debauchery and parties where teenagers go upstate and drink alcohol and smoke pot and have gatherings with taruvis, have we learned nothing from Tisha B'Av? So listen, our job is to speak B'Shvachim Shal Yisrael, always to look for the merits of Eden. And the fact of the matter is that they're honoring Shabbos Nachmul. Maybe they don't know how to honor. Maybe they're misled, misguided. But they are honoring Shabbos Nachmu. So our job is to make sure to teach them to do it the right way. I am not personal witness. You know, we do live in a world of indulgences and comforts. And there are many things being done that are not. I mean, some people talk about the same thing with the kiddush clubs on Shabbos. Or with the banes before Shabbos. You know, things have sometimes taken on a shape of social... Um, clubs and social ent- entertainment or whatever you want to call it. And our job is to realize that young men and women and Bichlau people in general are in need of deep spiritual inspiration. And if they're not going to find it in the right places, they're going to turn to the wrong places. I'm not saying they're not accountable, but that's what our job has to be, is to figure out how to show people and guide them through Torah, through Chassidus, to use it, what is a Shabbos Nachmu? What is its real meaning? You personalize it for people's lives in their own personal life, I assure you that they'll use it in a much better way. But when it's not understood, it's okay, Shabbos Nachmu, another Shabbos. Shabbos, you know, after three weeks, now we can go eat meat. And all the, all the, the concerts that all begin, very much very external, very superficial. When you understand that this is coming after three weeks and now we have the ability to go deeper comfort ourselves, comfort each other. Find healing after pain. That changes the whole picture. You just answer a question with a question. People always ask me the question. You know, the reason I'm turning to all kinds of different things that I'm doing that are not necessarily coming from Jewish sources because I don't see how to find relief, how to find comfort in, in Judaism. You have it right in front of you. Thousands of years, a system, a time-tested system that helped millions of Jews to get through the most difficult times, to know how to go through the flow, the flow of three weeks of challenges leading to seven weeks of comfort. We have ways, we have methods here, a formula of how to bring comfort to people. And I would say, how about Italia? If you can teach people how to find that comfort, how to find relief, how to find healthy interactions with their souls, with God in, this, in the seven weeks, Nachamu, starting with Nachamu, that will make the Nachamu become a much more meaningful one. 
That's the best approach that I understand. We could sit here and, and fire and brimstone and criticize from today till tomorrow. Our goal is to be productive, to inspire, to find ways to help people, motivate them, empower them. Okay. With that, let us see here. We'll do something on Parsha Veschanan. Listen. So Veschanan, we all know Veschanan is also the Gematria Tovkov Tezvov. That's 515 prayers that Moshe Rabbeinu prayed to go into Eretz Yisrael. That's the Shabbos after, also Shabbos Nachmu. Going to Eretz Yisrael, of course, if Moshe had gone in, it says in Svarim, Chassidus cites it, the Gula would have been. Moshe didn't go in. But he prayed for it. And not once, not twice, 515 times, till Hashem finally says to him. So of course the question is asked, what's the purpose? And if Hashem didn't want him to pray, he should have told him right away after the first prayer. Why does he wait 515 prayers? Another, a person writes it this way. What was the purpose of Hashem telling Moshe, you can't go into Israel, but you can climb a mountain and see it? Similar question. If someone went to a restaurant, then their purpose, is, with a purpose, their, their, their purpose is to eat the food. If the waiter said, you can't eat the food, but you can climb on the table and only look at the kitchen and see the food, the customer would, not, would ask for a refund. Perhaps Hashem had a good reason to do this to Moshe. I can't figure out the reason. Maybe Rabbi Jacobson knows the reason. So it's two separate questions, but they're similar in nature. So let's answer the first question. First of all, every tefillah that Moshe said opened the way and paved the way. So yes, it didn't fulfill his actual desire to go into Israel, but he helped. He helped his people and the generations to come to go into Israel. Tosuf Tezvov, Chassidus explains, is Gematria, Hey, Hey, Tovkuf is 500, Tezvov is Yudke. Tov Kuf Tezvov speaks about the Hamshach of Yudke into the Tov Kuf Shona Ben Rakia to be Mamshach in time and space, levels of divine transcendence. So the time had not come because we had not arrived at a point of total alignment between heaven and earth. But never think that there wasn't any purpose, God forbid. And that's why the Torah documents his prayers and tells us, and, Hashem ta- and even the fact that Hashem tells him to stop praying, it all helped pave the way, which is also the answer why Hashem showed him to go to see on the mountain. Moshe was not interested in a sightseeing tour. The Gemara says, why did he want him to go into Eretz Yisrael? Lechim he wanted to eat its fruit. He wanted to be Mekai Mitzvah, the way, the complete way you can do mitzvahs only in Eretz Yisrael with the Beis Amidrash, etc. So then why did Hashem show him to look at from the mountain? If he wasn't interested in, in a... Uh, a, uh, a sightseeing tour because that tzaddik's eyes change reality by looking from Moshe he was seeing the Kedusha Se'oretz so Moshe grew from it and in turn he also was Mamshech a power that helped pave the way that Agachavah explains it helped make it easier for the Jews to conquer the land that's the power of a tzaddik's eyes so we see from this always the more de- depth going on more than meets the eye so even though, and the connection to Nachamu, even though we don't have yet the Gaul in the fullest sense of the word, but the eyes of tzaddikim that gazed 
and envisioned and dreamed about Geula gives us power. Their prayers give us power. It opens up another door, another door, making it easier for us to finally cross the threshold into the Geula. Let's do now a few follow-up. And, um, yeah. So one of the follow-ups was about should I leave my shlichus due to a health threat of ticks? So here's someone that wrote a follow-up, wrote, wrote a follow-up response. Hello, Rabbi. On your Sunday program, you read a letter from a rabbi who wants to move from his upstate community because of the plague of ticks and Lyme disease. He was understandably hesitant to use pesticides because they could contaminate underground well water. I live upstate and also have to deal with the problems. I want to offer some suggestions that worked for me to help mitigate the problem on my property. I first need to be clear that ticks can bite any time, anywhere at any time, even in the winter. But in the cold months, they are much less active. There is no way to completely annihilate them, but there are things we can do to make our, pros- our properties less inviting. First, we must remove things from our yard that can harbor them. Remove wood piles and leaf piles and mow the law often. There's a non-toxic power called diatomaceous earth, which is ground up seashell. It has very sharp microscopic edges. Sprinkle it around the property, sprinkle it around the property, and when ticks walk over it, they don't like it on their feet, so they click it, so they lick it off, thereby ingesting some of the powder which rips tiny holes in the digestive tract as it goes down and kills them. It's best to wear a mask when sprinkling the powder to avoid breathing it in. Another thing is to have birds that eat ticks on your property. Chickens eat ticks, but you have to put them inside closed coops at night to protect them from foxes and coyote. Guinea hens can eat 2,000 ticks a day, but they are feral birds, so you have to build a nest they can roost in and hope they like it and stay and eat your ticks. You can buy guinea, guinea hen keats from local farms for $5 each. Having eight of them can cover an acre of property. We can shower immediately when coming in from outside and hopefully wash some ticks off that are crawling on our bodies but haven't bitten yet. Putting clothes in a hot dryer for 30 minutes kills any ticks hiding in the clothes. And checking ourselves a minimum of twice, a minimum of twice daily both by looking everywhere, head to toe in front of a mirror, and then by feeling everywhere with your hands in case your eyes missed a tiny, a tiny one. And of course, you need to keep a fine point tweezer in your pocket at all times or a tick spoon on your keychain and remove any ticks as soon as possible. I hope this advice helps. <laughs> well, what should I say? This person clearly has experience, and I'm glad I read it. It may help some people. And it's part of our uh, joint effort, and thank you for that. In, in that con- context, we also spoke about why did Hashem, why did God create mosquitoes? So here's, a, here's some, qu- some comments on that. Follow up to mosquitoes. I was once curious as to what purpose flies have. I searched online, and sure enough, they play a big role in the environment. I then started to look for what is the purpose of roaches, and mice and other bugs, etc. And sure enough, every one of them plays a vital role in our ecosystem. You can follow this link for the important role that ticks play in our world. Anyone interested in the, in the link, please send us in the forum 
chassidusapply.com your email address and I'll be happy to send the link. It's at sciencing.com. What purpose do ticks serve in the ecosystem? Okay, thank you for that. Rabbi Jacobson was discussing the purpose of mosquitoes and ticks in the world. They do serve a purpose in the food chain as they are part of the diet of frogs and birds. But if there were suddenly no mosquitoes, the frogs would find something else to eat. Just like if we were stuck in an airport with no kosher food, we would eat bananas and almonds and almonds and survive. But that said, but that doesn't explain why Hashem created parasites to be in, to be in most cases a nuisance to us and in some cases a severe, a severe health threat. If Hashem wanted, he could have created the mosquito to keep the continuity of the food chain, but made the mosquito in a way that doesn't annoy us with itchy welts. But instead, every time a mosquito bit someone, it would inject them with 50 milligrams of caffeine, and we would feel good just like we get a free cup of caffeine. But Hashem didn't do it that way. So the question remains, why would Hashem create a world where we can never have complete peace and relaxation because there's always the threat of a dangerous insect biting us. Will this change when Mashiach comes? Will we finally have true peace and not have to worry about being stung by a bee? And, can't, and we can spend our time learning Torah without being interrupted by insects. The answer is absolutely yes, but there always is a lesson. I mentioned last week the spider. I mentioned last week even the mosquito. There, is, there are lessons and they do have a role to play. We discussed that. Okay. I began speaking about narcissism a few weeks ago, and though I've spoken about it in the past quite a few times, more and more questions keep coming in about it and comments. So clearly it's touched a nerve. And I mean, it's sad to hear, but it seems more prevalent than most of us with, with, with knowledge. So I'm just going to read a few comments on it because as I said, many, many people are writing about it and I do hear from people who have heard the program. So let's add some more to the, for the record, contributions to this uh, important and yet painful topic. Thank you so much for your thought-provoking words, re-narcissism. You made some valid points about chassidim having extra tools and by tool, by, and bit, oh, bitol, by tool, bitol, okay. As you said though, the narcissist usually doesn't worry about being a narcissist and it's not them asking the questions or thinking there's a problem. How can we get a seemingly reasonable chassidish decent person with no self-awareness to realize that they indeed have a problem? Would you consider giving a talk entitled Were You Ever Accused of Having Narcissistic Traits? And speaking directly to the alleged person who contains, who considers themselves a chassid directly. I absolutely would, and um, it's like everything in life. If you're a friend to a person like that, you have to constantly, constantly, I mean, in a way that they will be able to receive from you, remind, inspire, encourage. I think it's always best to do it in a kind way, but the fact of the matter is, this is not something that people just wake up to, and they need to be made aware. I go back to Bittal, because if there is true Bittal and real chassidus, that's more powerful than a person's selfish narcissism, and especially the self-absorption that doesn't allow anyone close, doesn't allow anyone even to suggest the possibility. I'm not being naive. I understand that the narcissism itself does not allow the Bittal in. But still, for the record, we have to be able to approach it that way. And sometimes 
person maybe has the bitl to the Rebbe and they hear something, and you hope maybe there'll be an opening. But it's still going to take work. I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, 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 flippant about it. Okay. In, is testing effective and productive, or can they really bypass and fudge their way through testing? I'm talking about a narcissist. You can only help someone who's ready to help themselves. Testing the day till tomorrow, even if you test and prove something, the person's not willing, what's the point? So I'm not sure whether this is a matter of proving something. It's a matter of a person realizing that good people are being hurt, family members, a wife, children, or others. Okay. How does one protect themselves against the reversal of actual facts when the fragile narcissist does research and then decides that you are the one gaslighting and abusive? I tell you, I advise you to speak to someone. You have to speak to someone who can help advise. Every case is different, and the question is what you should be doing. Are you stuck in a situation you can't get out of? Which itself is a question, why would that be the case? And look at all the options. It's very hard for me to answer this because I don't know all the details. Um, you protect yourself by not being in the line of fire and getting good advice what to do. And if that advice includes sometimes really disconnecting or severing ties or whatever is possible, that may be what you have to do. How do you deal with the effects of the narcissist bad-mouthing you to family, therapists, etc., for years, reversing the facts, painting a lopsided picture, and then you wake up to reality when stunning, with stunning clarity and painful awareness. Well, again, speak to someone. Try to find allies. Be honest. Have to know the situation of whether you're talking about a spouse to the narcissist or you're talking about someone who's a different relative. And I would definitely not take it lying down. You have to address it because this can be extremely destructive. But most important, do not look at yourself as the problem. The problem is the person who's the narcissist. If they acknowledge it or not, it's still their problem. But don't let it become something that you're, you're the problem when you're not. That needs to be established. If, they're indeed, if, there's, if, if they are indeed a chassid, is there a way to get them to focus less on themselves and their supposed mitzvahs and turn the focus on what's good for the family? You can try. What you could do is try, try hard, and see what comes of it. It's one of the most difficult situations, and I've seen, in my experience, situations where there was some improvement, some situations that was not, and then there are un unfortunately inevitable results. But you definitely don't want to just let it be, because if it's causing damage, you don't want to minimize that. It needs to be addressed. And... Uh, we always believe in the neshama of someone, but we also have to be reality, like we're talking about Tisha B'Av, reality of what the sadness may be, while we also hope for the best. So it's a combination. Okay, with that, Mesayim Mebetev, may be Yehovchiyom Meil L'Sosun L'Simcha L'Mayedim Tevim, Tisha B'Av will be a Mayed Gadol, greatest holiday of all, because it's the greatest darkness of all. Mashiach's birthday is on Tisha B'Av, Maybe be zeichet to that even before Tisha B'Av comes. Through your Futsamayinah this program, and all the other work that we do, and everyone does, should finally bring Osimada Malka Meshicha. This has been my life, Chassidah Supplied. 
We are here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Kol Tuv, and a very meaningful and elevating and Gu'uladika Tishabov. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.